Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for season four of Let's Talk About Sects. Their support has meant a lot, and their equipment is a huge reason why the show sounds great. Be sure to check out their creator pack if you're looking at content creation yourself. And if you're not a producer, get onto their home audio setups to make your home entertainment on point. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. No one knowingly joins a cult, and no one in a cult would call it that. We join, we commit to communes, new religions, personal growth programs, temples, revolutions. Saying, I joined a cult, comes later, if ever. It means releasing stories we doubt we can live without. Stories that give us purpose. Stories we can't see as stories, so long as they absorb us. Helen Zuman describes herself as a tree-hugging dirt worshipper devoted to turning waste into food and the stinky guck of experience into fertile, fragrant prose. Her memoir, Mating in Captivity, details her experiences joining Zendik Farm, a commune in North Carolina with the motto, Stop Bitching, Start a Revolution, which she came across in 1999. Helen stayed until 2004, but it wasn't until the following year that she recognised she'd been in a cult. Welcome to Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also touches on suicide, potential sexual abuse, and has a little coarse language. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Carol Merzen was born on the 14th of October 1938 
to a Jewish family in New York City. I couldn't find out much information about her family background, but secondhand information suggests it was quite dysfunctional, and Carol's mother later died by suicide at the age of 75. Carol became involved with a gang in Hell's Kitchen as a child, and she had her first baby at the age of 17. She'd married the Catholic father of her son while she was still a teenager, and found him to be an abusive husband. When she escaped the marriage with her baby, she asked her family for help, as her secretarial salary wasn't enough to provide for the two of them in the expensive city. Her family sent her off to Jewish Family Services, where she was told that her son could be placed with a well-off Jewish couple who would take care of him and send him to college. Carol felt defeated and gave up her two-year-old, then pursued a series of short-term sexual relationships to try to distract her from her pain. Friends decided that she needed a change and sent her off to San Francisco for a fresh start. Lawrence E. Wolfing was born in El Paso, Texas on the 7th of October 1920 to working-class parents. His father was a printer and a World War I veteran, and his mother was a polio-crippled Baptist who knew from the start that her son was destined to change the world. She moved on from her Baptist beliefs to become a bookie and follow science of mind, a part of the New Thought movement, which holds beliefs around metaphysics, the laws of attraction, positive thinking, and creative visualisation, and she also claimed to be a psychic. As a teenager, Lawrence got caught up in a more hedonistic lifestyle of sex and drugs and rock and roll, and continued to pursue such pleasures into his mid-thirties, by which time he was twice divorced. Like his mother, he became a bookmaker as well as a jazz drummer and hot rod enthusiast. In 1957, he took a trip to Paris, where he claims he was introduced to Allen Ginsberg and other artists of the Beat Generation, and it seems was inspired to become a poet and writer. Over the next nine years, he wrote a 900-page novel entitled Zendik, and adopted the name as his own from the text. So his biography goes. When the book was finished, Zendik discovered that its story of an artist's unshakable will to greatness while well-received on literary grounds, was considered too blunt and controversial for mainstream release. After potential publishers asked him to make changes in the novel that he found unacceptable, Zendik withdrew it from consideration and never attempted to publish it again. By 1959, when he was 42, Lawrence was attempting to pursue a writing career in Los Angeles, where 23-year-old Carol also found herself. Carol had just been cast in Petticoat Junction, so she tells it, and gave up the opportunity to be with this man she'd met, whose poetry captured her heart and whose writings explored a utopian future filled with honesty and art. She later wrote in her blog, He was almost 20 years older than I and you could say there was a bit of hero worship going on. I'd never met anyone so brilliant and enormously talented and good-looking and able to fix my car at the same time. Similar to many brilliant and talented people, he had a hard time socially, but I didn't know it then. By this time, Lawrence Wolfing was going by the name Wolf Zendik, and Carol Merson changed her name to Aral Wolf, then later to Aral Wolf Zendik. Together, the couple played gigs around LA, and Aral did some exotic dancing to help pay the bills. But they weren't finding fulfillment living this life and Wolf's parents offered them the use of their ranch in the high desert of Southern California in return for undertaking maintenance work and covering taxes. They hit upon the idea of building a self-sustaining commune where they could live according to their own ideals amongst like-minded people. 
again from Aral's blog. Quote, Our hope was to form a group of humans close together who could create an atmosphere where children would be safe and adults could express their true desires and needs and expand as human beings into doing work that was both meaningful and fulfilling for themselves. In other words, go after the creation of the idealistic family of man concept, in it together, one for all and all for one kind of thing. Zendik Farm was formed in 1969 and initially recruited new members by touring a Zendik band around nearby colleges, spreading the word about their alternative lifestyle amongst idealistic young students. Mainstream American society was the death culture, and there was another way to live. Wolf wrote, quote, Possessive attitudes about sex lead to jealousy, hostility, hate, violence, murder, end quote. Jealousy was framed as a conditioned response to growing up in a competitive society. So from the start, the Zendik approach to sexuality was non-monogamous. Former member Helen Zuman said that Wolf's solution was to, quote, extend the weave of intimate belonging and interdependence beyond the couple, relocate responsibility to provide from the pair to the tribe, free those in partnerships from the compulsion to cling to one another for the sake of survival. The non-monogamy and a lack of unified purpose created issues from the outset, and a member set one of the commune's huts on fire in a fit of jealousy. The incident precipitated a mass exodus, and the few who remained reconsidered how they could better focus and inspire commitment to the project. By the time Helen Zuman arrived in 1999, the method was well established. It was, like, work, then respect, then friendship, than love. The idea was that Zendik was this noble, revolutionary cause. It was the only thing on the planet worth working for. So first, when you arrived at Zendik, you were just learning how to work, how to sort of do the grunt work required to keep things going. And doing that work with your comrades would generate respect amongst you and between you. Out of that respect could grow friendship based on your shared commitment to this cause and based on an understanding of who the other person really was, warts and all. And then out of that friendship that had this collective context and this revolutionary context could come real love, love with a capital L, love that we opposed to death culture love, which we thought was just a mutual defense pact and was kept going by the members of the couple lying to each other. For us, love with a capital L was based on honesty and grew out of this Zendik matrix and was not possible without it. In June of 1976, Aral gave birth to a daughter who she and Wolf named Fawn, the first child to know only the Zendik way of life and remain unspoiled by the death culture. Fawn slept in her mother's bed until the age of 12, and she told Frederick Kunkel for the Washington Post in 2006, I grew up very strangely. Mum and Dad, their relationship was sexually open from the beginning. They always had other lovers. I never remember them sleeping in the same bed. I grew up with Mum and Dad as Mum and Dad, and they were never together. 
Wolf certainly became known for sleeping with many of the young women who came to the community. Helen Zuman wrote in a blog post for the Foundation of Intentional Community, quote, Was Wolf scheming from the beginning to gain sexual access to nearly every post-pubescent female on the farm? Perhaps, perhaps not. Either way, he got it. I asked Helen whether she formed an impression of Wolf Zendik from her experiences. As she says herself, she could only draw views of the Zendik founder from others who knew him. I never met Wolf. He died four and a half months before I arrived. So I have no firsthand impression of him. I only have impressions of him gleaned from his writings, from watching his raps on video, listening to his music, and hearing other people talk about him, and of course, experiencing this thing that he created. My impression of Wolf, I mean, I have heard from some people who lived at the farm and knew him that he was this friendly old guy who just wanted to write and philosophize and make music and so on. I've heard that from some people. And I've also heard, especially from women, about the ways in which he really victimized some of them. When Wolf was alive, he, as I understand it, had sex with pretty much every adult female on the farm. And if you showed up and Wolf thought you were hot, like, we're not going to say no to him. And some women, from what I have heard, really enjoyed getting together with him. And others did not. But that was what you did. Also, I heard about him at some point lining all the women up and (laughs) pointing at each one and telling them how much they ought to weigh, i.e. that they ought to lose a lot of weight, even if they were already thin. So there were things like that. As I see it, he started this thing. He was the original guru. He was the original seeker after power. And Errol was his first follower, the one who legitimized this idea that he had special wisdom that people should gather around and pay heed to. Wolf's enlightened and progressive attitude didn't extend to homosexuality, however. In his novel, A Quest Among the Bewildered, he wrote, Sometimes the gayness seems like sadness, and of course, the very fact of their homosexuality is a vaginal denial. Denying the vagina, you deny your source, and thereby yourself. And into this impossible paradox, any fairly adjusted, overt homo has twisted the frame of his days. Los Angeles Times writer Tom Gorman visited Zendik Farm in 1987 and wrote, Most everything is splashed abstractly with paint. Lavender is the favoured colour. And almost everything is adorned with the letter Z, right down to the dangling earrings worn by the men and the tattoo on the right cheekbone of the head woman. The photographs I've seen show a whale tattoo high on Arrol's cheek. By this time, the farm was situated in southeast San Diego County, with Wolf's parents' property having been sold at a profit after the Zendiks improved it. Tom Gorman wrote that they then headed out on the road. Quote, They tried Florida, the Salton Sea, the Laguna Mountains, Topanga Canyon, and even a house in Imperial Beach. Everywhere they were driven out, either by pesticides or smog or sewage spilling out into the ocean. 
At the date of the article, the journalist gleaned that the revolution was about its children, and there were eight in the community at the time. They were being raised communally with an eco-conscience. Wolf Zendik told the writer, We're here to save the kids. This is not pie in the sky. Life is happening here. They are being educated here. True, they're being educated as revolutionaries because that's the only logical, intelligent response to the culture as it is. We would like to be a utopia, but we can't until the whole world is a utopia. Later on, when Helen joined, children didn't seem to be much on the agenda anymore. By the end of the 1980s, Wolf was struggling with emphysema, and as a result, drugs were banished from Zendik Farm. For some, this was an intolerable development, and they left. In 1990, the farm moved to Austin, Texas, where Wolf managed to get a show on the local public television network. But the community had to move again when a new airport was built near the property. Former member Obby, who had perhaps dropped the first letter of his name as Arrol had, wrote a blog post about his 13 years with Zendik Farm. In it, he detailed the ways it had changed between his joining in 1978 and leaving in 1991. One thing that changed a lot was the living arrangements. Quote, The community I joined was a bit new age and a bit back to the land. Each member had a high level of personal autonomy and was encouraged to express his or her creativity and environmental consciousness in the design and construction of their own personal space. In practice, these spaces were in adapted outbuildings, trailers, garden sheds, crawl spaces, and any other space that could be made into a space. Between the Topanga and Boulevard periods, we were forced to live in tight quarters. When the leadership discovered they could build social cohesion by constricting personal space, cramped quarters became the norm. By the time I left, the founders had suites, the favoured elites had dorm rooms, and the rest of us were in bunkhouses. Wolf and Arrol's daughter Fawn told the Washington Post that the commune had incorporated as a 501c3 nonprofit in 1991. The July 1993 issue of Spin magazine described the then 55-year-old Arrol as gorgeous, tall with long grey hair, slate blue eyes and a paisley tattoo on her cheek. In the wake of the Branch Davidian standoff in Waco, Texas, Arrol told journalist Darcy Steink, quote, David Koresh may have had some weird beliefs, but at least he understood the deep longing in people for community. You have to give him that. Meanwhile, Wolf was still making music, and it's worth doing a search on YouTube for a bit of a listen if you're that way inclined. I've dropped a link in the show notes. Here's Helen again. Yeah, there was a Zendik band when Wolf was alive. He was the lead singer in the band, and he was certainly the founding spirit behind the band. He made his own instruments. From the time that the farm started back in 1969, there were a number of musicians there and there was a tradition of going out busking at Venice Beach in California and other places. Then after Wolf died in 1999, Errol, his partner, took over as the lead singer in the band. She didn't have any musical training. Legend has it that Wolf told her that she sounded like a dying cow. So she took over the singing in the band. The music was all improvised, even the lyrics. There were some really talented musicians in the band who went on to make careers out of music after they left, but they weren't ever allowed to really carry the band. Errol was always 
bringing new people in and kicking people out. So the musicians who were playing with her didn't really have a chance to fully express their talents and create a coherent sound. Reflecting on the early shift in ideals from when she and Wolf had set up the community, Errol wrote, Zendik Farm as a commune did not work, but Zendik Farm Arts does. Five exclamation marks. It's a community of people who create and teach arts, crafts and technology. Artisans and craft people and artists who choose to live together because they want to, end quote. But it sometimes seemed that self-expression through art and music was limited to a select few. Helen wrote up a Zendik FAQ that included the following. Question. I'm an artist slash writer slash musician. I'll have lots of time to focus on my art if I move to Zendik, right? Answer. Wrong. You'll spend all your time working, eating, sleeping, selling, dating, attending meetings, and rapidly listening to Errol's extemporaneous diatribes, speeches. If you do have free time, you won't necessarily spend it on your art, since you'll soon be persuaded that your desire to do art is not necessarily consonant with survival, and in any case, whatever artistic impulses you've brought with you from the outside world are corrupt, hence not worth indulging. Also, as you learn to stop yourself from criticising Zendik and disown your pre-Zendik life, you'll have less and less that's personal to express. Your artistic impulses will be encouraged in direct proportion to their usefulness in creating Zendik propaganda. Question. The Zendiks say they practice something called life artistry. What's that? Answer. A good idea in theory. In practice, it's a mechanism for dissuading the rank and file from pursuing personal art projects. Here's how it works. If you're a life artist, then everything you do, digging a ditch, cooking a meal, selling a t-shirt, is art. This means you can find total fulfilment in accomplishing whatever utilitarian tasks the leadership sees fit to set before you, and you do not require time or resources for any other form of creative expression, i.e. any pursuit that does not directly aggrandise Errol and her family. Obi, the former Zendik who shared his perspective on his 13 years with the community, wrote, Wolf's and Errol's authority could only be challenged by each other, and that was how they restrained their extremes. In their writings, Wolf was bombastic, militant, and take no prisoners. Errol was all hearth and home and let's get along. Personally, they were each the opposite. Wolf was compassionate, considerate of differing ideas, and went out of his way to accommodate even the most troubled person. Errol had little patience for anyone who wouldn't unquestionably toe the line to her dictatorial whims. She was harsh, often used bigoted language, and could be brutal and mean. Wolf generally stayed behind the scenes, writing and approving business decisions. On most mornings he would make the rounds, checking in on the status of major projects. Errol was the field general to Wolf's commander-in-chief, running day-to-day life and dealing with operational or interpersonal crises as they'd arrive. They were only effective as a team, as Wolf's compassion restrained Errol's tyranny. End quote. There's a response to Obby's post from a former member who was known as Nom. He wrote that in 1994, when he had already left the community, he received word that Wolf himself wanted to leave and was asking for Nom's help to do so. Quote, Errol no longer believed in him or his thinking or ideals, and Fawn was on Errol's side. 
Wolf said he was being kept in a corner as a quirky old man who may have some interesting insights, but was ultimately silly and unrealistic. Wolf, of course, still saw himself as the cutting-edge philosopher of this age. Wolf even wanted to take the name Zendik with him and felt the farm should have to rename itself. Ultimately, Wolf's frail health left him with no other option but to stay. It was a choice between Zendik Farm and a convalescent hospital, end quote. Wolf Zendik died on the 12th of June 1999. The writings he left behind remained canon to Zendik's old and new. Years after Wolf's death, remembering his last moments in the hospice where he passed away, Arrol wrote, I came and sat at the edge of his bed and held his hand as he sat in the chair. He was watching death coming toward him, eyes open and completely lucid, the way I had seen him on acid taking a trip, this time his final one. She also wrote, A reporter from CNN came to our farm in Texas to do a cult story. The reporter interviewed Wolf, and Wolf was totally honest and true to himself. The reporter, later, on hearing of Wolf's death, cried. He would never meet another one like Wolf. He hadn't met a cult leader. He had met a dedicated crusader, someone who would never stop telling the truth no matter what. In the wake of Wolf's death, according to former members, Arrol asked a number of long-term Zendiks to leave the farm. According to her blog, quote, With his death, they were left with his wife, myself, who wanted no part of guruship, thank you. Most left. Some hung on plotting our demise for some reasons of their own. I've asked them why they stayed if they were so miserable and were done so wrong and I've never gotten an answer. I must conclude that they endured for the male guru-type leader image. He himself never wanted to be anyone's guru. He wanted people to think for themselves. Or was it the free food, the free sex, the image of being different and feeling superior, waiting to take over and gather power, didn't want to get a job, who the hell knows, they don't. They were always free to do as they please and certainly to come and go as they pleased. End quote. The community had again relocated in 1999, and Wolf's body was buried on the North Carolina farm. Helen Zuman wrote a memoir detailing her experiences at Zendik Farm between 1999 and 2004. Her book is called Mating in Captivity, and it's a fantastic read. I highly recommend it. You'll find a link in the show notes to her website, which has further information on where you can get a copy. There's an interesting review of Mating in Captivity on Amazon, which includes the following. I moved to Zendik on my 21st birthday in 1986, and I know absolutely that Wolf's teachings and guidance set my entire life on a course for happiness, self-determination, and success. I will always love Wolf for that. In the pages of Helen Zuman's book, Mating in Captivity, you'll read of an entirely different kind of experience. The reviewer gave the book four stars. By the time Helen first visited Zendik Farm, it was four months after the death of Wolf, when the community was located in western North Carolina. Helen had always been an excellent student and had just graduated from Harvard she'd been awarded a grant of $13,500. When I graduated from Harvard in the spring of 1999, 
I received a grant to explore intentional communities in North America that grew their own food and homesteaded and such. And in order to do this exploring, I got a copy of this book called The Communities Directory, which is still in print. It still comes out periodically. It's published by the Foundation for Intentional Community. This book includes listings of groups, mostly in North America and some in other countries. So I had this book and this was where I found a number of places that I visited my first summer after college. At the end of that summer, I came back to Brooklyn, New York, where I'm from, and I hadn't yet found a place that I really wanted to land. So I went back to the book. I got tired of starting at the beginning with the A's. So I went to the back of the book and started with the Z's and there was Zendik Farm. So there was just this listing in the book. It had a brief description of the farm. It said that Zendik had the youngest average age of any community in the world. How they knew that, I don't know. It also said that they had apprenticeships, which meant that they had a way of taking in new people, which had not been true of other places that I had visited. And they said that they did art as well as farming. And that appealed to me because I had majored in art in college. And I did definitely want to learn practical skills, but I didn't want to abandon my artistic side. So I read this listing. I went to the library to use the internet. This was 1999 and Google was in its infancy. Zendik website was very primitive, but it was there. I looked at the website. I got sort of more of a feel for the group. And then I called the number and talked to one of the longtime members and decided to get on a bus from New York City to North Carolina and check it out for a visit. You can read Aral's musings online still today on an archive of the Zendik website and on her blog, and it's easy to see some appeal in her words. This is from a post in 2011. The economy had better be about the survival of us all, and we need to revolutionise the way we think about governments and the ever-present rich and poor. Isn't it time for a real change? A real revolution that starts at the very foundation of what we know and begins to change that basic philosophy to one of cooperation, the health and welfare of everyone? We seem to go on century after century accepting what is, changing one exploitive civilization with another, over and over and over again. Isn't it time to stop and let our consciences and consciousness run the way we live our lives and govern ourselves? Although Helen had initially planned to visit lots of communes over her year of post-college adventure, a few months in she found that she was getting lonely. By the time she found Zendik, Helen was of a mindset that it would be nice to settle down and have a social network for a while. She wondered if this might be the place to do that. The number one thing that appealed to me was the people. I had spent my entire life in school. I had very little practical skill. I didn't really know where food, water, or shelter came from. And that was something I really wanted to address. So all of a sudden, I was meeting all these people who did have all these practical skills, who were very, very hardy, knew how to grow food, knew how to build buildings, knew how to do electricity and plumbing and all this practical stuff. 
And they were also very confident, not only in their practical skills, but in their understanding of what they were doing with their lives. They were starting a revolution to save the planet from ecocide, and they were sure of that. I was the opposite of sure. Also, they were very, for the most part, personable, friendly, and very attractive. The men in particular, (laughs) their attractiveness really mattered to me. And they were attractive in a different way from the guys I'd had crushes on at Harvard. You know, like, sure, I can fall for a geek any day of the week. But these guys, you know, they had the tool belts and the Carhartts and the farmer tans. And so that was a whole new level of attraction. And the women, I mean, I'm not a lesbian, although some people there thought I was because of my baggy overalls and buzz cut. But I also noticed that the women were very attractive. And that mattered to me because it made me admire them more. But also because I thought, well, if I stay here, I could become like them. I could transcend my social awkwardness and my inability to handle the mating dance and maybe blossom into a woman who is as attractive and self-assured as these women are. I asked Helen if there was anything that struck her initially that seemed different to the other communities that she had visited. A big thing that stuck out to me immediately was Zendik's practice of putting visitors on quarantine. I had been to a number of other communal places with big communal kitchens, and this was the first time that I was told I had to pick out my own bowl and plate and fork and spoon and knife and label them with a marker and masking tape and eat only from those dishes so that I wouldn't spread bugs to other members of the community. And I couldn't wash dishes or help with cooking or anything for 10 days. And yes, there was a way in which this made practical sense. And it was explained to me as just an impersonal measure to protect the group's health. But there was this weird feeling around it. Like, okay, I'm a little bit of a leper. Hmm, that's interesting. Another thing that set Zendik apart was something that was mentioned there in their directory listing that, yeah, there were a lot of young people. And I would say, too, that Zendik was probably the most populated place that I had been. I'm thinking of another couple of places I visited out West. And both of those kind of had had their heyday, maybe back in the 80s, and were fairly small by the time I got there. But Zendik gave the impression that it was thriving and it was growing. I asked Helen to tell me a little bit about who she was when she first went to check out Zendik. When I arrived, I was 22, almost 23. I was a virgin. This is significant to my story because sexuality turned out to be really a big part of my experience at Zendik. I had had one boyfriend for two months when I was in high school, and that was it. I was, as I have said, I was very awkward, very shy. I was confident in my intellect. I knew that I was smart. I knew that I was a good writer, although I hadn't really yet committed to writing yet. But in other realms, in the social realm, in the realm of just what is going on here in this crazy world that I haven't yet found my place in, I was not confident. And right before I went to Zendik, I remember seeing the movie The Matrix in a theater. It had just come out. 
And I had an extremely intense experience watching that movie. After I left, it was late at night and I went out and like climbed the chain link fence and like butt scooted along sidewalks. I was desperate to do anything that felt to me like breaking through the matrix, like breaking through this skin of civility where everyone was lying in order to maintain this sense of courtesy and calm. And I just had this feeling like, where's real life? I craved honest conversation and self-revelation and kind of social excitement between people. I was just bored of being nice and polite and going along with the program. Helen decided to make a huge gesture and donate all of her grant money to Zendik. In her book, she writes about her doubts around this. It wasn't that she was completely convinced that this was the right thing to do, but she did it anyway. Well, I knew that it was a risk. I knew I was taking a big gamble. And also, there were a number of factors that convinced me to go ahead. One of them was, I grew up with very little money. I had never had anything like this amount of money to my name before. The grant was $13,500 American dollars. And by the time I got there, I handed over 300 early on as kind of a, quote, seriousness face. So I had 13,000 left when I handed the rest over. I was really worried that I was going to make the wrong choice, that I was going to take this one chance at having a large sum of money and do the wrong thing with it, which is ironic because you could say I did exactly the wrong thing with it. But how I was seeing it was that I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I don't know what is worth giving to, but these people really seem to know. And so if I give the money to them, I can feel more confident that it will go to a good cause. Also, when I first arrived at the farm, I had certainly this sense of being separate, of being on the outside and having to work my way in. And I thought, well, maybe if I make this big dramatic gesture of commitment, it will help me. It will smooth my path towards the farm's heart. Also, I had this, you know, having graduated from Harvard and been at the top of my class in high school and so on, I had a real propensity towards intellectual arrogance and towards elitism. And I thought, well, you know, I applied to Harvard early action. I didn't apply anywhere else. I got in. I knew exactly what to do there. Maybe I've struck gold again. Maybe I have found the one group in the world that really does have all the answers. And maybe I would be losing out on this amazing opportunity if I didn't stay. And there was a little bit of competitiveness in there too, because there were a number of other new people. They were all happened to be guys. And I was, at the time that I handed over the money, I was living in an insulated box in the back of the horse barn loft with these other guys. And I really wanted to be in the girls' bedroom on the top floor of the farmhouse, closer to the center of things. And I felt like I was in some kind of ghetto with all the new guys. And I wanted to sort of pull out of that pack. I wanted to pull away from them. And giving the money was a way to do that. 
Helen writes in Mating in Captivity, quote, With that, I joined the ranks of those who'd surrendered wealth to Zendik. Details varied, but not the bottom line, in ink still invisible to me, give it up or leave. It could be an inheritance, a car, a college fund. It could be good credit. On the farm's behalf, some Zendiks accrued credit card debt that the farm intended never to repay. Some gave it up with ease. Some succumbed to pressure. A few resisted and left. I was unusual only in my quickness to anticipate the farm's need. Although, aside from newcomers, Helen assumed that everyone was equal in the Zendik community, after a little while she started to see that really wasn't the case. When I first arrived at the farm, I noticed that people had these colored strips of cloth around their wrists. I didn't think much of it. A little later, after I had handed over my money, someone else informed me that the colors of these wristbands corresponded to people's levels in the Zendik hierarchy. And I was shocked and chagrined because I was wanting to escape hierarchy and escape being numbered and ranked and compared to others and trying to climb a ladder. When I brought this up with one of the older Zendiks, she told me that there was no hierarchy, that that was just a projection I was making because of my competitive conditioning, that actually the people who were higher up, they were more evolved, they understood the philosophy better, they took more responsibility. So how Zendik actually was structured, it was a pyramid. Errol was at the top. At the time when there were wristbands, she and the people in her inner circle had purple wristbands and they were called the family, capital F. The family comprised Errol, her daughter, her grandchildren, the other children who had been born at Zendik, who were considered more pure than the rest of us. Also, Errol's boyfriend, her daughter's boyfriend, various other men who had been her daughter's boyfriend at various points, and some other people who had been at the farm for a really long time and were considered to be very loyal. Errol was at the top. Errol's blood family was very much in the center. And then the other levels kind of corresponded in part to how long you had been at the farm. The longer you were there, the higher your level. They also had something to do with whether you had given the farm a large amount of money. Like there were a couple members who had given Zendik at least a couple hundred thousand dollars. They were in the family. You could also kind of climb the ranks by doing really well at selling and making a lot of money. But about a year after I left, the official levels disappeared and the wristbands disappeared. But throughout my time there, I always had a very keen sense of who was where in the pecking order. We didn't need wristbands to know that. And power orders always just filtered down from Errol and her inner circle to those who had been there for a while, to those who had been there a shorter amount of time. And if you were new or a visitor, you were just the last to know you were on the outskirts.
further fund the community, Zendix would leave the farm regularly to sell magazines, CDs and stickers on the streets, usually at concerts and festivals. They called their merchandise Ammo and would say to people that they were a group of artists who lived on a farm, grew their own food and were starting a revolution. The magazine was an underground art magazine and the stickers ran with the catchy slogan Stop Bitching, Start a Revolution. Christina Aguilera appeared on MTV's TRL wearing a singlet top with the slogan and the Zendik website URL in 2004. Those who headed out on the road were called road warriors. And if you were great at shifting ammo, you would be known as a power seller. There was a change of pace, switching between life on the farm and life on the streets. There were sort of two different daily routines. One that happened when we were at the farm and the other that went into effect when we were out on road trips selling our self-produced magazine CDs, T-shirts and bumper stickers to make money to support the farm. So on the farm, just taking it from my perspective, I would wake up fairly early in the morning, you know, maybe seven or so, go outside to the outhouse to answer nature's call, then go down to the farmhouse or later the kitchen dining hall for breakfast. Somebody else was cooking the meals most of the time. Sometimes breakfast was make your own. Lunch and dinner were all cooked for us by whoever was working in the kitchen that day. So breakfast, then I would receive word of what I was supposed to do. Sometimes if I was making lunch that day, making dinner, there were some things that were scheduled so I knew in advance what I was doing, but often I didn't know till I was told. There were people who were in charge of work crews, which often involved landscaping projects on the land. Oh, there was also goat milking. That had a schedule too, so I might be doing that early in the morning. So basically working, sometimes outdoors, sometimes indoors in the morning, then gathering for lunch, more work in the afternoon, gathering for dinner. After dinner, sometimes I might be going on a date. Dates at Zendik, well, when I first arrived, involved the interested party, quote, hitting up the person they wanted to get together with through a dating straighter or administrator either for a walk, which meant just hanging out, talking, maybe actually walking around, or a date, which meant going to a dedicated shack called a date space and having sex of some sort. So if I was having a date, that would happen in the evening. Also, at various times, it could be at night, it could be in the afternoon, it could be in the morning. Kind of at any time, one of the higher-ups could call a meeting. And sometimes those were scheduled in advance, sometimes they were impromptu. But That was sort of the wild card in any day. Like maybe Errol, the leader, decided that there was some urgent issue we had to address, or maybe we were going to have one of the various different kinds of meetings we regularly had. So that would sort of interrupt the flow of work. But I mean, the basic pattern was from the time I got up till the time I went to bed or went on a date, I was meant to be available for whatever the group was doing or whatever work I was being asked to do. And Then when we were out on the street, we would, again, usually get up, well, get up fairly in the morning unless we had stayed up really late the night before. When we went on these road trips, we brought all of our stuff with us in our vehicles. We brought our bedding and our pots and pans, 
our food, our water, and our ammo. That was our name for the things that we were selling. So we brought all this stuff with us and then we would find people who liked us, who knew about us and liked us to stay with, or we would just approach friendly strangers we met on the street and ask them if we could crash on their floor. So we get up in the morning, clean out our van, make breakfast, roll up our bedding because we were sleeping sardine style on somebody's floor. Sometimes there would be a meeting. If there had been trouble the night before, there might be a meeting, a call from the road crew to home to check in. And then we would go out on the street or to a concert, wherever we were selling at that time, and just spend the entire day, especially if we were on the street. It would be maybe from late morning to late at night. You know, it could be 11 a.m. to 2 a.m., just relentlessly approaching strangers and trying to get them to buy our stuff. And then we would <laughs> go to our place to stay, get three, four or five hours of sleep, get up exhausted in the morning and do it again. These routines played out pretty much seven days a week for Zendix. Well, the weekends were our most intensive selling time. Usually we were going selling on the weekends. So many weekends were more intense than the weekdays if we were out on the road. Weekends at home, sometimes on Sunday, like Sunday afternoon, there might be some kind of a ball game or maybe some people would go on a hike. Oh, and also sometimes on Sundays, Errol would give a rap or a talk, kind of like a Sunday sermon. And that would be kind of a short opportunity for a breather. So Sundays sometimes had a flavor of slight relaxation, but mostly it was just we were on seven days a week. Helen told me that she felt most Zendix who stayed on had arrived at a time of transition in their lives. The questions came hard and fast to new arrivals around where they came from, whether they had a significant other, how long they were planning to stay. I think that another thing that connected those of us who came to Zendik and stayed was this real hunger for a more authentic way of relating, for an opportunity to claw beneath the surface of polite conversation and really get into the guts of what happened between people. And I think there was disillusionment with business as usual and understanding that capitalism and related illnesses were unhealthy for humans and for life. And just a willingness to take a risk, to leap into the unknown for the sake of something beautiful that might happen. I think that to live at Zendik, you kind of had to have a pretty good imagination to be able to translate this day-to-day, which involved a lot of drudgery and, and a lot of pain, to translate that in your mind into a future where the world would be governed by equilibrium, which was our term for this form of governance where ecological well-being came first to translate this day-to-day into this beautiful existence filled with honesty and singing and dancing and so on. So I think that was something that connected us as well. I mean, I still feel that in my relationships with my friends 
who all sees Blavitsendik, that there is this certain willingness to really deeply question and to look beyond the surface and look beyond assumptions and ask, well, does it really have to be that way? Could it be different? As Helen mentioned, the dating culture was a huge factor in her attraction to the Zendik way of life, and it involved quite specific rules to follow. An important aspect of the Zendik dating and romance scene was that your love affair didn't really belong to you. It was not some private arrangement between you and your love interest. Like I said before, if you wanted to get together with someone, you had to go through a third party. The women had to get specced by someone else to check to see if we were fertile. Helen describes specking in a post for the Foundation for Intentional Community thus. It's one aspect of the rhythm method Zendik relied on for birth control. I gauged my fertility by tracking my waking temperature, which rises right after ovulation, and submitting before each date to a cervical inspection with a speculum. Another former member wrote of her experiences as a Zendik in the early 1990s, quote, New Zendiks were told that safe sex was unnecessary because Zendiks had a sex quarantine program for incoming members, a few weeks of enforced celibacy during which newcomers were sent to a local clinic for a batch of STD tests. Once your negative results came in, the quarantine ended. Considering that, at the time, two sexually active long-term Zendiks were known to have genital herpes, the quarantine and testing were meaningless. End quote. She also wrote that there was a mysterious chlamydia outbreak in 1993. Condoms wouldn't become approved for use until years after Wolf's death, as he hadn't liked them. Even when they were allowed, it was by special request. And if we were fertile, then we were not allowed to have intercourse, and that was the basis of how we prevented ourselves from getting pregnant. You also had to ask the person in charge of date spaces where you could go. So there were all these points of contact where you were getting permission, you were making your plans known to others. So it wasn't a private affair. Then the next day, there was usually pressure in some form to report on what had happened, especially if it hadn't gone well. People could sort of smell a good story. And we had sex meetings where we were going into detail often about people's sexual hangups or their romantic problems. In terms of people getting together in the long term, that was permitted for Errol The entire time that I was there, she was with one man whom she got together with after Wolf died and stayed with until he left the farm many years after I left. It was permitted for her and for her daughter, who I call Swan in my book. Swan and Errol were permitted monogamy, and the rest of us were not. It wasn't explicit. No one ever said, thou shalt not be monogamous. It was just that this pattern 
repeated over and over again, in which if two people did get too interested in each other and just want to have dates with each other and want to spend time with each other outside of dates and sort of just be with each other whenever they could, that at some point, Errol or Swan was going to come down on that couple and accuse them of being square, which was bad, of fucking with the revolution, of being in a bubble, of screwing with our survival. And that couple was going to get an ultimatum, fix your bullshit or leave the farm. How that worked in the bigger scheme was that Errol needed each of us to be primarily loyal to her. And so for the sake of group cohesion, she could not countenance the really any long-term committed relationships. Helen told me there was no thought amongst the other Zendiks that Errol or Fawn, who, as she mentioned, she gave the pseudonym Swan in her book, were in any way hypocritical for practicing monogamy in their relationships whilst repeatedly pressuring others to stop seeing each other if they got too close long-term. Oh, absolutely not, because she was more evolved than we were. The story was that she and Wolf, who had been together for 40 years, not monogamously, but they had been together for 40 years, that they had been the first couple in history to have an honest relationship. They had pioneered this thing. They knew how to do it. And so Errol was completely capable of running her love life however she wanted, of being with just one man and not falling into deception or screwing with the revolution or anything. And the same was considered to be true of her daughter, who had been born into Zendik and grown up there and had not suffered the corrupting influences of the death culture. In terms of having children, as I mentioned earlier, Wolf's focus on raising the next generation in the right way had taken a back seat by the time Helen became a Zendik. Over the four plus decades of the farm's existence, I believe the attitude towards procreation changed a lot. In the time that I was there, it was pretty strongly discouraged. The purpose of getting spec for every date was, well, partly to exert control over our sexuality, but also to prevent pregnancy. In the time that I was there, two children were born. One was born to a couple that Errol had put together. She had said, you and you, I think you should have a kid. And another child was born to a couple who were together and were in love with each other. And the mother happened to have the chance to make the decision before Errol tried to exert influence on her to keep the child. There were abortions in the time that I lived there. There were certainly instances of coercion in which Errol coerced the woman to have an abortion. And there were other times when the woman may very well really have chosen to do that. When I had been at the farm for a few years, at one point, Errol suggested that I have a child with my sort of longish term on again, off again boyfriend. She made this pronouncement. And so we were blessed and we tried and it didn't happen. The thing that happened in general after a woman gave birth. Oh, and I'm forgetting also that Errol's daughter, she had three children total, one of whom was born when I was there. So Errol's daughter was permitted to have children, no problem. 
But with the exception of Errol's daughter, any woman who gave birth at the farm was separated from her child at some point. And this was a pattern that happened that I witnessed happening when I was there. And it also, I heard about it happening before I arrived. This was a long running pattern, whether it was for a few weeks or a few months or something, somehow Errol would find a way to try to break that bond between mother and child early on. And a long-term Zendik who had known Errol for many years pointed out at one point that this most likely, well, I would say looking at the broader cult pattern, it again stemmed from this need to make sure that each person's primary loyalty was to Errol and the parent-child bond, if it was allowed to stay strong, could certainly be a problem in that regard. But it also most likely harkened back to Errol's own experience when she was very young. She had a child with a man that she was married to. He abused her. She left him. She struggled mightily to take care of her young son on her own. She asked her family for help and they sent her to an agency of some sort to get help. She thought she was going to get financial help to be able to keep her baby. And instead, she was offered the option of adoption and felt that she didn't really have other options. So in a sense, she was pressured when she was very young to give up her child. And then she recreated this with all these women who gave birth when she was a Zendik. I asked Helen how her views of Aral changed from when she was living on the farm to when she looked back on her time as a Zendik. When I lived at the farm, I kind of treated Aral as God. I perceived her as being incredibly wise and insightful. I felt like she could stare into my soul and pull out truth about myself that even I couldn't see. So if I had one perception of myself and she said the opposite, I would defer to her. She could be quite nasty and very critical. She could just verbally rip people apart. She could also be very kind. So she could rip you apart and then later on approach in a very friendly way and put you back together. I didn't think of her when I lived there as being nasty. I thought of her as being incredibly honest. Like, look, Errol is the only one who is courageous and righteous and evolved enough to fully be honest. And if I weren't such a coward, I might be able to do what she does. I also saw her as the ultimate arbiter of any kind of art. You know, I had been interested in writing for years and years before I came to Zendik. But as I said earlier, I had not really committed to it. When I lived at the farm, I wrote things here and there and I would show them to Errol. I would give her batches of writing and then look to her to tell me what was good or not. It didn't occur to me that she didn't really have credentials in writing herself. I just assumed that she is coming from this revolutionary place and she knows what art is good and what art is not good. Looking back on my experience of her from a distance, I see her entirely differently. I see her as a master manipulator. She knew how to find people's weak spots, to get people to do what she wanted. I also believe that 
she did believe in Zendik. She did believe, I would say, that Zendik was the best option for life on earth, that nobody else was doing anything as forward thinking as the Zendiks were. So I don't think that she was a charlatan in that way, but that didn't stop her from outright manipulating people in ways that I wasn't able to understand until later. So in retrospect, I see her as seeker after power and influence who created a tribe around her that would work to bring in money and build these beautiful places for her to live and so on. I see her very differently now. Gaslighting is a term that's entered popular discourse in recent years as it relates to abusive relationships. It comes from British playwright Patrick Hamilton's 1938 stage production and its subsequent film adaptation, in which a man convinces his wife that she's going crazy by dimming the gaslights in the house and then telling her that she's imagining this. As it relates to coercive control, an abuser will undermine a victim's own sense of reality and cause them to second-guess their own judgment. It's a hugely effective tool to encourage reliance on the abuser to make clear judgments rather than oneself, resulting in a handover of emotional control. Many who have exited cults intimately recognize this dynamic. I don't think that Zendik was ever going to go down the path of Heaven's Gate or the Branch Davidians or Jonestown or anything. That was just not part of the Zendik worldview. There was an idea at Zendik that if you left, you were betraying the cause and you were betraying all of life. Since Zendik was saving the world, if you left Zendik, you were casting a vote for humanity and all the wild creatures to die. There was a sense of doom attached to leaving the farm, you know, and this idea that you were putting your life at risk by doing that. When I left Zendik, I felt so doomed that I did, I would say not seriously, I don't want to overdramatize this, but I did consider killing myself because I didn't see a way out of my dilemma of either feeling doomed forever or begging to get back to Zendik, not knowing whether they would take me. And I think really maybe the most dangerous thing about Zendik is, I would say, kind of the thing that's common to any cult is this insistence that the member surrender self-trust, that you give up your own perceptions, your own thoughts, even your own past, your own history, that you ignore the wisdom of your body, the signals of your body, and you replace that with the thoughts and ideas and judgments of the leader and the group. And that's really dangerous on a soul level. There's a long thread on a forum site called Hip Forums where a number of people detail their experiences with Zendik Farm. The thread runs for 43 pages and has a variety of different perspectives, both positive and negative. One that goes into a lot of detail over a few posts is from a user called Red Lantern, 
who writes of joining Zendik in 1991 at the age of 17, when she was at a very low point in her life. Quote, I was more depressed and fatigued than I'd been when I arrived, and now I was expected to do 10 hours of farm slash housework every day. There were no days off. Of course, I didn't have the other 14 hours to myself. There was a mandatory meeting every morning, which often dragged on for hours, three communal meals every day, and classes, lectures, or meetings every night. New recruits had to take extra philosophy classes and complete reading assignments after the workday was through. Non-Zendic books and music were confiscated from newbies and divvied up among older members. We only read Zendic books, listened only to Zendic music, except when the core members we bunked under were listening to cassettes they'd stolen from us. The Zendics knew that I had been suicidal, that I was depressed. They did nothing to address this. When I expressed the hopelessness and loneliness I was feeling, the Zendics were extremely cold and unsympathetic. They told me that I was not special, that everybody felt this way. And it didn't stop anybody else from doing their work, so I had no excuse. I was told to snap out of it. Their cruelty and neglect was far worse than anything I'd experienced in the death culture. I was a threat to my own safety, this was clear, and instead of encouraging me to find qualified help, which need not be mainstream or conservative, mind you, the Zendix used my emotions as a weapon against me. It was like living with 40 Dr. Lauras. They tore me to shreds, end quote. She was kicked out of Zendik Farm in 1993, on her 20th birthday. Like many other groups we've looked at for the podcast, criticism amongst Zendiks of each other became a part of daily interactions. By the time Helen had joined, the mostly negative feedback was known as input. Yeah, and that was attached to this basic pattern of Stripping the individual of self-trust. Thou shalt not trust thyself. And sometimes input was something that I would solicit to check to make sure that I was making the right choice. But also input just got thrown around willy-nilly as well. I mean, input usually meant criticism. And we would talk about it as if it were neutral, that input is just data. It's like if you're trying to get somewhere and you have good information about where to go, you're more likely to get there. It's just data. It's just information. We also sometimes called it information. But in reality, it was usually critical. It could be harsh. And really more than giving information, it was a way to beat each other down and keep each other in line. Even from her early days at Zendik Farm, Helen had come to understand that she'd require input before making certain decisions. This meant she felt she had to ask for permission even when it came to something as personal as losing her virginity. That happened after I had been at the farm for a few months and I had absorbed this understanding that I was not to trust myself about big decisions. And losing my virginity was a big decision. And I could feel that. So I first attempted to sort of take an easy route and just ask one of the longtime Zendik women if she thought it was okay for me to do this. And she said, no, she couldn't make that judgment that I should ask Zendik's alpha male, basically, in a sex meeting. And so that's what I did. It was a bit embarrassing, but I played it up and went for it and was told to go ahead. 
And so that night on a quilt in a moonlit field, I brought two precious gifts with me into the mystery of intercourse. The regard of a man who truly loved and admired me and the blessing of my tribe. I'm still grateful to the man for his kind and gentle guidance and to Zendik for allowing me at least this instance of claiming my sexuality without shame. In 2002, Aral was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. When lower-ranked Zendiks had serious health issues, they were told to call their parents for financial help. No health insurance was provided through their work or the Zendik organisation. Helen wrote in her Zendik FAQ, If the sick or injured party is Aral or Fawn, the illness or injury is treated, and that's the end of it. If the sick or injured party is one of the rank and file, the group manufactures a psychic cause for the illness or injury, i.e. a way to blame the person for having attracted the illness or injury to her or himself. Aral underwent a five-hour surgery on the 22nd of October. Then instead of getting the recommended course of chemo, headed to Mexico for a month of alternative therapy treatment at a cost to the community of $25,000, not including travel. In her absence, Helen felt more at ease on the farm than she ever had before. Upon her return, Aral seemed kinder and more mellow, but it didn't take long until she was blaming the Zendik's square relationships for causing a fire at the farm and dissolving the latest round of couples who were being too monogamous and screwing with the revolution. Zuman eventually found her way out of Zendik Farm, but it took some time. I left Zendik in late September of 2004, after I had been there for almost five years. In a way, my departure from the farm had a very long tail. I would say that the beginning of my end came in the summer of 2003 when Errol sabotaged my relationship with this man I had been with off and on for a few years. This was the man she suggested I have children with. She had encouraged us to become the model's end couple and to come to her for advice whenever we wanted to. This went on for a few months and then she dropped us and condemned us. And that was the end for us. When that happened, I thought okay, I am simply not worthy of having a lasting, honest relationship with the man. That was one of the big things that had attracted me to Zendik and that had kept me there. I thought this was the only place on earth where I could have this. So coming to the conclusion that I wasn't capable of doing it was kind of devastating, but I told myself, that's okay. Zendik, the tribe, the cause, is the only love I'll ever need. I'll just double down my commitment to that. But in retrospect, I would say that was not something I really could give up because really at my core, that was something I deeply wanted and had wanted for a very long time. So that was kind of the beginning of the end. That was something I think that made me unconsciously begin to lose heart for Zendik as a place where I could get what I wanted. 
And in the summer of 2004, Errol decided to move the entire farm from Western North Carolina to West Virginia. She didn't have much time to get the deal done and get the move made. And because of that, there were moments when I noticed contradictions in things that she did and things that she said. I didn't necessarily use those contradictions to then think, oh, Errol's full of shit, but I noticed them. And that in itself was unusual and mattered a little bit. Also around that time, I was going on a lot of selling trips and I kept doing really badly on the street. There was never an official quota for how much a seller had to make in a given day, but there was always an unofficial quota. And at that time, what was good was maybe $250 or $300 a day. And I kept making $88. And I knew this was bad, but I just couldn't pull myself out of this losing streak. And so I was on a trip to sell some festival in a town called Virginia Beach. I was doing badly. I got talked to by the cops and threatened with arrest. That happened to other members of my crew as well. We had to decamp to Washington, D.C., I did very badly again. I was told I was a disgrace. I had to stop selling. I had to put my ammo away and go sit in the car. I knew that this was very bad. I knew that being told to stop selling when Zendix always wanted to make as much money as we possibly can was one step away from Zendix death. The next day after that happened, I did attempt to make amends and I was allowed to sell again, but I knew it wasn't over. We got back to the farm. And the leader of my crew told Errol what had happened. And Errol told this woman that she had to call a meeting of the whole group to decide what to do with me. And this was a strategy she had used before when she wanted somebody gone, but she wanted to pretend that she wasn't deciding. She would call a meeting to decide the person's fate. But we all knew what we were supposed to decide. So this was one of those instances. And yet, I still believe that there was hope for me. I knew that I had screwed up badly, that there was some deep flaw within me that needed to be healed. But I thought, you know, maybe these people who live here, maybe they have enough affection for me that they're going to come up with some therapy that I can try to fix whatever's wrong and make it possible for me to stay. And I thought that if I was told to go, that I would beg another chance. But then when this meeting happened, I was not at the meeting. I was just called in at the end. I was called in to hear the verdict and I was told I should go and I did not object. I was told, we think you should go. And I said, I think you're right. Something happened in my body, some form of acceptance. And I think also a tiny bit of relief and excitement My main feeling about this development was that it was tragic and horrible and devastating. And I was losing everything, my home, my family, my cause, the only thing worth doing with my life. But attached to that was this little tiny feeling that, oh, now 
I get to be on my own. No one's going to be watching me. I get to make my own choices. I get to choose what to eat and where to go. I get to go on an adventure. It was a terrifying adventure. It felt like a terrifying thing to do, but I just couldn't pretend in that moment that I really, truly, all the way through me wanted to be there because some part of me knew that it was time to go. From her original $13,000 donation and almost five years of working on the farm and selling on the streets, in return for meals and board in a shared dormitory and zero wages, Helen asked for some money to be able to feed herself out in the world. She was given $10 and a lift to the highway where she could hitchhike a ride. Journalist Frederick Kunkel reported for the Washington Post that by January 2006, the Zendik Farm Arts Foundation's most recent IRS filings showed an annual revenue of $403,236, though apparently it was operating at a loss. Arrol may have claimed that Zendiks were free to leave at any time, but it's easy to see that if the most you could hope for was $10 and a lift to the highway, from a farm that might be states away from any relatives, it could be that some didn't see this as much of an option. Even though Helen had been asked to leave rather than made the choice of her own volition, she knew her fate was now ostracism from the people she thought of as her family. So when I physically left Zendik, I was no longer in contact with the Zendiks. I knew that I was a traitor now and I was persona non grata and no one was going to want to talk to me. So that was a pretty sharp cut. But I was still deeply attached. You know, I felt like those were my people. Those were the people whose opinion I cared about. They were my tribe. They were the people I loved. They were my family. And I continued to feel that way for quite a while after I left. However, because I could really barely at all be in touch with them and because I needed to make money and survive and so on, I was forced to develop relationships and make friends and so on, always with the feeling that these people weren't quite my tribe the way the Zendiks were. But nonetheless, I did make friends. I did get jobs and so on. So in a way, in spite of myself, in spite of my deep desire to just be able to go back to Zendik and be welcomed to return, I was slowly and gradually detaching by forming other attachments. But it was a very slow process. And I carried this feeling of doom and wrongness with me. I also did not go straight home to New York, where I'm from, which was only a few hours away from West Virginia. I could easily have called my mother and asked her for money for a bus ticket and she would have given it to me. But I didn't do that because I felt that my family was part of the source of my corruption and part of why I wasn't able to make it to the Zendik. And so I should flee in the opposite direction. And I traveled west out to California. I ended up traveling all the way around the world. I even hitchhiked across Australia on my way home to New York. So it took me a year, about a year to get home. Once I got home, I was able to relax in a survival sense for the first time since I had left. I moved back in with my mother. I didn't have to worry about food or a place to live. I had to make money, but it wasn't so urgent. And in that context, I was able to start 
acknowledging that I had doubts and start acknowledging that there were things about Zendik that I didn't like. And I had help in this from a former Zendik who had lived there years before me and found me on the internet and encouraged me from a really compassionate place to face these things that I had hated about the farm. So I was sort of like gradually shifting into a place of openness to another story about Zendik, but I was still really deeply committed to Zendik being the only way and still having this feeling of wrongness. And that's the situation I was in when a friend who had lived at Zendik and left about six months after I had, when she came through New York City on her way from San Francisco to Paris, and we got together and talked. And at the time I tracked her down and first got in touch with her, I thought that she was on her way back to Zendik. She'd always been a better seller than me. I thought, well, of course, that's what you would do if you could. You would go back. And that was my huge question for her when we got together was like, are you going back? And she was like, no, I am never going back. And I was like, what? Really? Like, you're allowed to think that? You're allowed to say that? And I had been thinking about not going back myself, but I hadn't fully given myself permission to entertain that as an option. But when she said it, I was like, oh, that really is a possibility. So we had this multi-hour watershed conversation in which we kind of retold the story of Zendik going from we failed because we're terrible people to we're no longer there because it is a fucked up place. That was sort of the beginning of the new story. And in that conversation, she also told me about this book by Steve Hassan, Combat and Cult Mind Control, which she had read Her father had told her about it and she had read it shortly after leaving the farm. I got the book pretty quickly. I read it and I had been overjoyed just by my conversation with her. That alone was enough to lift the weight of the world off my shoulders and make me feel like something else was possible beyond doom or going back to the farm. But then when I read this book and I saw how closely Zendik fit the cult pattern, That kind of gave me a mental structure to hang this new understanding of Zendik on. I could no longer entertain the possibility that, oh, maybe my friend and I were just bitching because we were gone and we were bitter. Like, no, there is a pattern that other people have witnessed and described. And this pattern shows that Zendik is not unique, that it is simply one iteration of this very well-established pattern. And those two things, that conversation with my friend and reading this book just changed everything for me. I was jubilant. I was happier than I'd ever been in my life. And I really didn't have feelings of regret. I didn't feel ashamed. I didn't feel stupid. I didn't wish I could go back and do it over. I just felt so thrilled that. I was now free to fully re-embrace my family and my old friends and my friends who had left Zendik and just have a broad horizon again and start living in the world again and loving the world as it was.
Sometimes people who have lost family members to high-demand groups reach out to me to ask for advice. Even people who are considered experts in this area struggle to give advice. There's often very little you can do to get someone out. But the one thing you can do is remain available to that person. Try to be non-judgmental, perhaps ask questions here and there that may prompt them to really examine the contradictions. But no matter what, let them know that you will always be there for them. It's not an easy ask when someone you love is cutting themselves off to you and acting in hurtful ways that you don't understand. Helen's mother managed to do just this. Before I moved to Zendik, I was pretty close with my family. I had good relationships with them. I guess I did feel a bit of a divide in terms of my sexuality. Sex was not something we talked about in my family, really. And I felt that that was something I had to hide. So that was, I guess, part of what attracted me to Zendik was feeling like at Zendik, I was acknowledged as a sexual being for the first time in my life. But generally, relations were good. At Zendik, I had some contact with my mother, also with one of my brothers and with my sisters. I had contact with a number of people, but the quality of that contact was really what mattered. My mother made a real effort to simply stay present with me the whole time that I was there. She actually came to visit twice. She knew that this was not a healthy place for me to be. And some of her friends were telling her she ought to go down to North Carolina and pull me out. But she decided that this was my life and I got to make my own decisions and she was simply going to be there. And that was absolutely the best thing that she could have done because when I left, I knew that she was there. I knew that I could call her. I knew that she would help me. I knew that unlike the Zendix, who did not want to hear from me at all once I was out of the fold, that she would always want to hear from me no matter what. And that was a really great safety net to have. One of my sisters also came to visit me. She had a terrible experience. Errol was incredibly nasty to her. And that just made her really, really angry at the farm. And rightfully so. My other sister, at some point, she kind of gave up on me, which I totally understand. And I had to make amends with her later on. I did actually go visit her after I'd been at the farm for a little while, very early on. And that was okay. But then I kind of went more off the deep end and didn't hear from her much after that. I have a brother who I went to visit partway through my time at the farm. He was living in Idaho at the time. I did leave Zendik for a couple months in 2002. And he had come to visit the farm also early on. He was the sibling who I felt was most open to alternative ways of living, who I felt was most likely to understand what I was after. And so it was very good for me that I was able to go visit him during this fraught time of my departure. Then after I left for good, maybe, I think it was maybe the day after I left, I left by hitchhiking. I was given $10 and a ride to the highway in West Virginia. And I decided to head for California because it was fall and it was getting cold. And I mostly was getting rides with truck drivers. And this one truck driver just pulled out his cell phone at one point and was like, here, call your mother. And so I did. So I reestablished contact with her. 
when I was at the farm and I would talk to her, I would never tell her what was really going on. I would make small talk and say, oh yeah, I just went on this selling trip and I just milked these goats and the goats had babies, but I very much kept her at a distance. And after I left, I gradually started to let her back in, but I continued to really ferociously protect Zendik and my perception of it from her and my other family members. Like I wouldn't talk about any of my doubts about Zendik because I felt like no one who hadn't been there could possibly understand. So I was still keeping them at bay in that way. Once I realized that Zendik was a cult, I also realized that I owed my family an apology and I needed to make amends. And I did that. Now I would say that that gash of my disappearance is healed. And I did have some amends to make afterwards. A version of the Zendik website archived in December 2005 has these words from Aral on the homepage. No, Clintons won't save us and Bushes won't save us and FDR won't save us and Kennedys won't save us. Only new and complete change to an equilibrium form of government will save us. A true direct democracy, not a crappy representational one like we have now. We can do it by turning our backs on them and look to each other and find our own answers. It's easy to see echoes of this attitude amongst various groups active in America and across the world right now. Yet if you look closely, the idea of a real democracy in which everyone has an equal say and true accountability is not demonstrated in the ways they operate. It wasn't possible from the outside to understand the details of how Zendik worked. Like, Neither the magazine nor the website said anything about hitting people up for dates through third-party administrators. That was something you didn't find out until you came to the farm. And it was never explicit, like who controlled the money or who owned the land. The outward-facing story that we had was, we all make decisions together. No one's really in charge. Errol has the most experience, but we all have input into what work gets done and how things go. If someone on the street had evinced real sincere interest in the farm and they really wanted to know, for example, how dating worked, I might have told them. But really, Zendik was like an onion. And you learned more and more as you worked your way in. So the longer you were there, the more you understood. But things like the money and the land, I mean, I never saw a bank statement. I never saw the deed to the property. There were just these basic practical aspects of the organization of the farm that I didn't know anything about. I'm thinking now too about this incident involving food. We would tell people on the street that we ate all organic food. And that was mostly true. We grew a lot of our own food and it was largely organically grown, although we did use treated seed. I didn't understand that till after I had left. But we would say that that was part of what made us pure and set us apart. For a while, I was ordering the food 
And I took this over from another woman who had left. And I hadn't really known anything about organic food when I arrived at the farm. But once I learned about it, I became really committed to it. It felt very important to me. And I took over the food ordering and I noticed, I think that our turkey burgers and our chickens, that they weren't organic. And I thought, this must be an oversight. You know, Errol must not know. So I went to Errol and I told her, Errol, these items aren't organic. And I think I mentioned this to her through a go-between and then the answer came back, leave it. Don't go there. Don't ask. We're going to put forth this fiction of how we eat and we're not going to ask questions. For people looking to join an intentional community who want to check whether there's a risk of that community being a cult, Helen suggests reading a post she made on the Foundation for Intentional Community website entitled Fifty Shades of Community, which I've linked in the show notes. Some essential things I would recommend that people look at. One is find out who controls the money and who owns the land. If a group is pretending to be a commune or a collective or run democratically, but the collective doesn't actually control those things, then there's some bullshit going on. Also, how is the group governed? Is it possible to know that? Is the structure written out somewhere? Is there a clear path towards membership? Like at Earth Haven, this eco-village that I spent time at in North Carolina, there is a clear path to membership. You show up and you can declare you want to be on membership track. You can be interviewed. You invest a certain amount of money. You spend a certain amount of time. You tell your story to the group and so on. It's knowable what the route is to get to a place where you have all the responsibilities and benefits of membership. And at a place like Zendik or in any other cult, that's not really knowable. It's going to be pretty vague. Also, look at how the people in the group relate to outsiders. Are the people in the group able to collaborate in a collegial way with people who don't live there? How do they talk about outsiders? How do they talk about people who have lived there in the past and left? Do they keep in touch? Are they friendly? Do they cast aspersions on those people and talk about them as failures? Are the bonds made within the group allowed to continue after the people have departed? And then when people depart, how well are they set up for their next stage of life? And kids who grow up in the group, how well are they set up to spread their wings and fly if they should want to do that? Because in a cult, nobody gives a crap about what happens to you after you're gone. But in a healthy community, the bonds among the people, I would say, really are primary. You know, people are not interested in cutting each other off. Like they care about each other and want each other to succeed, whether they stay or whether they leave. And then there's this just this very basic matter of self-trust. And I would say this applies to someone checking out a group that they maybe are looking to join as well as someone who's already in a group that maybe they're not feeling that good about. Like a really powerful question to ask and a thing to look at is, are you being asked to surrender self-trust? 
are you being told that the source of wisdom and understanding is outside you, is in the leader and in the leader's teachings and the group? Or are you being encouraged to listen to your own heart and your own mind and in particular, your own body? Because the mind is capable of making up all kinds of stories to make anything make sense. But the body is not so good at that. The body tends to know when something is wrong. So yes, I would just say like, ask yourself, are you being encouraged to see yourself as the main source of the wisdom that you need to direct your own life? Or are you being discouraged from doing that? One of the last updates on Aral's Facebook profile is a quote attributed to Wolf, posted on the 3rd of August, 2010. Do not attempt to own what cannot be owned. Know that true power is in love and friendship, health and well-being. These cannot be bought. They are free. Know that freedom of thought is the voice of your soul and cannot be bought. So it is that you are free and shall prevail. started her blog in September 2009. In her introduction, she wrote, One of the issues I hope to clear up with this blog is the misinformation, slander, and downright lies circulating about myself, my deceased husband, Wolf, and Zendik Arts. I've never read the dirt, some of it pretty low-life disgusting, slung at us, but I've heard about it from friends and neighbours. I've never read the attacks. I never read tabloids or the gossip columns. I find people who spend their lives trying to hurt or destroy others to be ridiculous at best, petty, stupid, and quite contemptible at worst. I'm very open to commentary on this blog, but I'm really not interested in people who want to argue or prove a point. True, open, curious communication is very exciting to me. Arguing is not. At this time in our history here on Earth, we need desperately to be together and learn to love and respect each other. We can no longer afford to be against each other. That way, one against the other, those in power stay in power. For ourselves, our children, grandchildren and generations to come, I know, as well as many of my friends everywhere on earth, that we can create a beautiful world. End quote. Interesting words for someone who claimed to value honesty so highly. One might interpret them as uninterested in others' truths. Errol made her first blog post in defence of her old friend, Roman Polanski. Quote, Most Hollywood teens at 13 look at least in their 20s and are very precocious in the sexual area. I don't think if you're at a party and end up having sex with someone, are you going to ask for their ID to make sure that they're the right age? That might tell you all you need to know about Errol's attitude in terms of victim blaming. In August 2011, Errol wrote on her blog, I have to let go now. As all visionaries, I've been hated and loved. Single-mindedness is not a popular thing to be up close with. It is adored in the world in the form of rock star worship or movie star worship or CEO worship, but being up close to a single-minded person dedicated to his or her commitment to their place and business in the world is not very popular among those who haven't done that with their lives. 
So now I face my death as this dedicated, single-minded person. And now I have to learn to let go and put it all in God's hands, as they say, and stop the anger and feelings of betrayal and pain at the hands of others. That is their business, not mine. Aral died in June 2012, and Zendik Farm finally disintegrated the following year. So at the time Aral passed away, the farm was in pretty dire straits financially. I believe there was quite a bit of debt. So it's not like the farm was swimming in cash. Before she died, she did add her daughter's name to the deed for the property, which was in West Virginia by that time. And her daughter later added her own husband to the deed as well. So Errol's daughter and her husband ended up as owners of that property, which was really the major asset, as far as I know, that the farm had. I believe they sold parts of the property, subdivided and sold parcels that other people could build cabins on or whatever. But as far as I know, Swan and her husband still own that property in West Virginia. She tried to sell it for like almost a million dollars at a certain point. She put it on the market for that much, but it really wasn't worth that much. Errol had bought it kind of at the height of the bubble for, I think, $850,000. And by 2011 or whenever it was that her daughter tried to sell it, it was actually worth maybe three to 400000 But her daughter wasn't willing to come down. So as far as I know, she and her husband still own it. They don't live there. They moved away. So the property is just sitting there, as far as I know. If you want some visuals, there's a photo gallery from when the property was on the market in a HuffPost article I've linked in the show notes. V had been a member for Zendik's final 14 and a half years, and she wrote about the last days in a comment on former Zendik Obby's post, quote, In the end there was a force of us who had stuck around through so much we were definitely demanding that we own some part of what we were doing. We were also much more about making allegiances with lots of other people and also starting to truly see and treat each other as actual friends. Almost impossible to do in a hierarchy. There was this huge struggle in the last years and we persisted as there was an illusion and we believed that we all kind of owned Zendik together by this point and that the past hierarchical thing was over. As life forces pressed the issue, it became sadly and shockingly apparent this would never be. So a gang of us pretty much left together, which for the most part was the end of Zendik. This episode, I'll leave you with some final thoughts from Helen Zuman. I would like to talk about this idea of composting stinky experiences. As an ex-cultist, I think there can be the temptation to try to get over the experience, to just move on and leave it behind. And I actually see this experience as a great source of fertility. It was very painful in some ways. There were also joyful moments and moments of great pleasure and friendship and connection. And I see it as the source of fertility that only becomes that if you're willing to turn and face it and kind of turn that pile and incorporate all the meaning you can find there into your life. And 
I mean, like I said, I never regretted moving to Zendik. But beyond that, in the years since I've left, I've really come to be grateful not only for the friends that I made when I lived there who are still very dear to me today, but also for the chance to experience this side of human nature, to understand that it is actually completely possible for a group of humans to create a story and live inside it as if it were true. And that's kind of what humans are doing all the time. And some stories are very harmful. Some stories are helpful. Some are in between. But it's really humbling to know that it's entirely possible to build this whole world only to see it shatter. And these days, you know, here in the United States, there are, of course, deep divisions between the red states and the blue states and the people who hate Trump and the people who love him and the people who wear masks against the virus and the people who say the virus doesn't exist. And I hear so many people saying the other side is stupid. And I just look back to my Zendik experience and recall that when I lived there, I did a lot of things that made no sense to people who didn't live there. But it wasn't because I was stupid. It was because I was living in a different story. And so that's the perspective that I hold today is this deep belief that people who do things that I wouldn't do are not stupid. What they do makes sense to them. They're living inside a different story. And the most generative thing I can do is try to understand what that story is. access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. Details at ltaspod.com. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and researched by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. A very special thanks to Helen Zuman for sharing her story with me. She had this message for you. I would love it if you came over to my website, which is HelenZuman.com, H-E-L-E-N-Z-U-M-A-N.com, and signed up for my newsletter. And if you do, you will get not only a free text excerpt from Mating in Captivity, but also, this is all new as of last week, five audio excerpts from the book and two exclusive surprises from Deep in My Zendik Vault. So please come on over and do that if you are so inclined. You can find a link to purchase Mating in Captivity in the show notes, highly recommended by me. And this and all my information sources are listed at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for season four of Let's Talk About Sects. 
If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from true wireless to noise cancelling to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Thanks so much for joining me to kick off season four of the show and hope to catch you again next episode. Pause the podcast you're listening to right now and subscribe to Ghost Town. Ghost Town is me, Rebecca Lieb. And me, Jason Horton. And we explore all kinds of weird history, true crime, hauntings, paranormal events, and more. We cover the Slenderman stabbing, Tesla's death ray, the D.B. Cooper copycat, the cheerleader murder plot, Heaven's Gate, the Lars Midtank mystery, and Tuesday's Child, Ellie's first satanic magazine, just to name a few. You can find Ghost Town on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.